Ahmed Nersessian, director of the center, uh, before we get going on today's uh, program that was uh, proposed by uh, Beverly Zabriskie and Harold Atmanspacher. Uh, I'd like to uh, tell you what we are planning for spring of next year. So far, we have planned three roundtables. One will be on data versus discourse, humanities in the age of big data. The other would be on the ethics of AI, uh, machine learning. And the last one would be on the general subject of memory looked at from various perspectives. Uh, Beverly will take over from this point and introduce the speakers. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. Um, the persons in this room are one of the three audiences for this program. There is also a live stream audience, and there will also be a YouTube audience going through the years. So uh, remember that if you get up and, and ask a question or make a remark, you will be recorded out at infinitum, and uh, that's taken as a release, that we are allowed to use your question and your presence in the YouTube video. So welcome to all three audiences uh, to this day. Um, I'm a Jungian analyst. Ed, Ed gave me permission to say that in this hallowed building and uh, tells you what an ecumenical mind he has. And Jung said that if he ever came back to another life, he would study prime numbers. That's how he would spend his time. And he urged all of his followers to do so. I have not done so. So the closest I get to understanding mathematics is by being around minds like in this circle. And so I think that's a pleasure we'll all have today. So thank you all for agreeing to come and to be with us in Alma, especially to you. You stepped in at the last minute because Stephanie was ill. So thank you. Alma did not intend to be here this morning, and here she is. Spontaneity. <laughs> courage. So Harold and I were talking about this as a possibility, and he suggested the title Mathematics and Other Realities. So that's what we'll be speaking about today. And it's a spontaneous conversation. There's been no preparation. And it's meant to be scholars and intellectuals who hear each other and then get into an exchange. Harold is a senior scientist at the Collegium Helvetium at the University of Zurich and the Polytechnic in Zurich. After a PhD in physics at Munich, he worked as a research scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics. Then he served as head of the theory group at the Institute for Frontier Areas of Psychology at Freiburg. His fields of research are the theory of complex systems, conceptual and theoretical aspects of quantum theory, and mind-matter relations. He's the president of the Society for Mind and Matter Research and editor-in-chief of the interdisciplinary journal Mind and Matter. Last summer, I went to Harold's conference on the science of consciousness in Interlaken. He said it was one of their smallest conferences. It was 620 scientists from around the world discussing the matter of consciousness and where it emerges from and scientific perspectives on that. 
In Switzerland, we like to keep everything small. We're a small country after all. <laughs> and then Alma, Alma Steingart researches the interplay between politics and mathematical rationalities. Her second book, Accountable Democracy, Mathematical Reasoning, and Representative Democracy in America, 1920 to now, examines how mathematical thought and computing technologies have impacted electoral politics in the US in the 20th century. She investigates how changing computational practices from statistical modeling to geometrical analysis insinuated themselves into the most basic definitions of fair representation of the American electorate. Nothing could be more timely than what you're working on. In pure abstraction, mathematical thought and high modernism forthcoming, she invest, excavates the influence of axiomatic reasoning on mid-century American intellectual thought. She's a junior fellow of the Harvard Society of Fellows and a pre-doctoral research fellow at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. Pardon me? I was a junior fellow. I'm now uh, in Columbia. All right. Oh, yes, that's true. You are now a professor at Columbia. That was not added to this. Thank you. Michael Harris has become a mainstay intellect of the Helix group here. He's a professor of mathematics at Columbia and is on extended leave from the University Paris Diderot, where he taught for 20 years. He was professor at Brandeis, got his PhD from Harvard. He's organized and co-organized more than 20 conferences and workshops. And his field of number theory and until 2018 directed the European Research Council project, Arithmetic of Automorphic Motives. Fantastic. <laughs> I have to find out what it means, but I know it's fantastic. <laughs> He's a visiting, he was, has been a visiting professor at Bethlehem University in Palestine, and he's been an exchange scholar at the Stekhalov Institute in Moscow. He's initiated the project of science for people in Nicaragua, in Nicaragua and London Paris Number Theory Seminar. His book, Mathematics Without Apologies, won the Prose Award in Mathematics. And his contributions to the Langlands program, maybe you'll tell us what that is. Um, he won the Grand Prix Sophie Germain de l'Académie in Sciences in 2006. And that's, he asked me to condense his introduction because it was, he thought too long, so many accomplishments. Harry Field is a silver professor and university professor at NYU. Before that, he taught at Princeton, USC, and CUNY Graduate Center. He's the author of Science Without Numbers, Expanded Edition, and Saving Truth from Paradox, as well as numerous articles in the philosophy of mathematics and logic. His Science Without Numbers defends the view that one can develop physics without assuming the, exi assuming the existence of mathematical entities. And he's been working in the philosophy of mathematics, less on the existence of mathematical entities and more on the objectivity of mathematics, which you're going to prove today, I hope. <laughs> Chris McDonald 
McDaniel has a BA in philosophy from Western Washington University. His PhD in philosophy is from University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's been teaching at Syracuse University until 2019 and is now professor of philosophy at Notre Dame. His publications include the books The Fragmentation of Being and This is Metaphysics, which is forthcoming. Topics in Metaphysics, Ethics, and the History of Philosophy. Welcome, Chris. Marcus. He's one of the founders of New Realism. He studied in Heidelberg, Lisbon, New York. He has held the chair since 2009 for epistemology, modern and contemporary philosophy at the University of Bonn. And at his appointment, he became Germany's youngest philosophy professor. Now, I just heard you upstairs tell the others that now there's a younger one. No, mathematics. He also won a Fields Medalist at my university. He was hired one month after me, so I was the youngest full professor at my university for one month. And then uh, Peter Schultz was hired at the age of 20 for, uh, 21 and just won the Fields Medal last year, so apparently a good hire. Yeah, so, so that's the reality of mathematics. Someone comes along younger, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's also the director of the International Center for Philosophy in Bonn, as well as the Multidisciplinary Center for Science and Thought. He's held faculty and visiting positions at many different universities, including NYU, and he's written popular books about philosophical issues. His book, Why the World Does Not Exist, has been translated into 14 languages. Sometimes we wish that was right, right? So I would now, after this long pause, um, ask Harold to open up the discussion, and thank you for your patience. On this roundtable, you will hear a lot about the term ontology, and ontology as opposed to epistemology. So I thought it might be a good idea to start with a very brief, maybe anecdotal piece, which illustrates to everybody uh, what ontology is all about, what epistemology is all about. And then we might go from there. Uh, in my example, my anecdote, of, of course, comes from the history of my own uh, field from physics. It goes back to the early 1930s. It goes to Ireland, to Dublin, uh, because at that time Erwin Schrödinger was working at Dublin and he was often visited by his phys physicist colleagues, like in this case, Erwin um, um, Werner Heisenberg and Paul Dirac. So Heisenberg and Dirac just took a little walk after the lunch, you know, out of, out of Dublin in the hills other hills, I hope, um, and then they, they come over such a, such a hill and in the valley they see a huge herd of sheep. And Heisenberg says, look Dirac, these sheep are all shorn. And Dirac, um, he was known as a very meticulous thinker, so he had to analyze the statement before he could answer. And then he said, well, Heisenberg, at least on this side. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you see, this is about being and knowing, right? So, I don't, I don't think I have to explain that, but being, the, the, you know, this is the notion in philosophy 
uh, which ontology deals with. So ontology is about existence. When you ever, whenever you make an, an existence statement in philosophy, this is about ontology. Whenever you make a knowledge statement, it's about epistemology. And I think uh, many sciences in the 20th century have seen a tendency to build up an ontology, which many of them call a fundamental ontology, which in physics would be about the existence of particles as kind of uh, building blocks for the universe and everything else. Like, uh, for instance, um, biology, genes, or even up to neuroscience is actually in some way, in one way or another, reducible to these particles. Even though this program is, of course, not completed, but the assumption is, in principle, this is the way to go. And, you know, when I still was a student, I had a um, PhD advisor who could still tell me that chemistry is not yet understood physics. So the hope was really to take all of chemistry back into physics. And the research program, for instance, of microbiology or, or molecular biology uh, is set up in the same spirit, just reduced to the smaller parts. Even in neuroscience, there's the neuron doctrine uh, where people think that um, you can understand everything in the brain once, once you understand how the neurons operate and cooperate. So this research program is the program in all these fields to build up a kind of fundamental ontology. We have the notion of ontology. So there's only one fundamental sort of beings, and everything can be reduced to that. Now, and interestingly, in the second half of the 20th century, voices here and there came up, and these voices became more and more, who sort of um, doubted that this is really working. So it's a kind of. We, we see today a kind of um, um, development in which people, at least in the natural sciences, that's what I can talk about really, um, start to doubt this notion of a fundamental ontology. And talking about fundamental, of course, raises immediately a resonance with fundamentalism in, much broader, in, much, in a much broader sense. So um, this roundtable is also, at least to some extent, a roundtable that could be, I don't know how it works, how it will develop, it could be a kind of critique or traces of a critique um, of fundamentalism generally. I mean, in physics and in, in the sciences, we, we see that anyway. And I'm really curious uh, to hear from all of you how you think about that. You want to do a round? Sure. Maybe yeah, whoever. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, I can say a few words about uh, you know the, the meaning of those terms, how I understand them, uh, and then how this relates to this you know claim that you flag that the world does not exist, which is uh, you know <coughs> shorthand or like a slogan for saying that uh, we shouldn't even be foundationalists in ontology itself, which I think is not identical to physics, but you know, just a few words about that, how at least I understand those terms. So I think ontology is the uh, systematic um, investigation into the uh, meaning of existence or depending on your methodology just into existence, right? So it might be a good idea to think about the meaning of existence statements to approach existence. So that could be a good methodology, that's why I'm saying it, or just into existence. Uh, and epistemology is the discipline which 
deals with the nature and scope of uh, what we can know about what there is. Mm. However, I think that, of course, the two you know, cannot be thoroughly separated because, trivially, knowledge exists, right? So, and um, and uh, what we've learned from you know, just the development of uh, modern natural science is uh, precisely that there's a sense in which the universe, insofar as it's the observable universe, is somehow intimately tied to its um, knowability by creatures such as us mm. for the trivial reason that our best and maybe only way, uh, but you will tell me about that, to know anything about the observable universe is by way of interfering with it, right? By intervening. That's, you know, the, you don't know the universe a priori. Maybe there's something that you know about the universe without experiments, um, such as that the universe is the universe, <laughs> or maybe some more demanding uh, things. But anyhow, so, you know, I think that uh, one of the things that we actually learn from the development of modern science is that we need to take into account that knowers exist within the universe. So, uh, this is something that I would also like to discuss with uh, some people here, right? Uh, um, th there seem to be paradigm cases of very demanding knowledge claims where we precisely cannot just distinguish between uh, uh, epistemology and ontology mm -hmm. in that neat way. Oh, well, I, I have opinions about the universe, but none of them is... Uh, is legitimated by my professional expertise. I'm going to keep them to myself. In, instead, I, I'm going to talk about what existence might mean to a mathematician, because it's a word that is used systematically. Mm -hmm. And yet, as far, uh, I've thought about this for some time, I, in its use, the use entails no uh, metaphysical commitment whatsoever. Uh, this is certainly how, how uh, I understand it. Now, there are uh, versions or interpretations of the foundations of, of mathematics. Uh, say, 100 years ago, people might have thought differently that it, there is a need to, uh, to found mathematics on something that's metaphysically, uh, uh, metaphysically transparent. But not so many people think that way any, anymore. Uh, and uh, when the word existence is so, the, a typical mathematical statement uh, begins with the theorem, there exists such and such. Another typical opening for a mathematical statement is, let x be something. Now, when you, when you analyze that, of course, this is, this is just really, really a, a, a performative gesture. This is saying, this is how one, one, one opens uh, the, 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 the discussion. Uh, if you analyze, let that's, a, that's an imperative. Now, who is, who is, to whom is that imperative addressed? It's nobody who's reading it is going to object or is going to prevent this X from existing, right? So this is just a way of talking, and uh, you might say that mathematicians have managed to uh, develop a coherent system of communication in the absence, in, in spite of, of the, the, the disadvantages of natural language, the, the fact that. So that's, that's uh, a, a, first, a first approach. And the other thing I would say is that um, at least uh, over the past, well, maybe 50, 70 years, mathematics has been increasingly, the practice of mathematics has been increasingly uh, dominated, especially in my field of number theory, uh, by uh, 
the fact that our imaginations, our expectations have outrun our ability to verify them. So there are large programs uh, in which people are, are working, um, the, the aim of which is to construct objects uh, whose existence, in whatever sense uh, one wants to mean that, and again, I don't think it's, it, it's, it's uh, uh, metaphysically very uh, significant, but whose existence has been anticipated. So there's a, that's to say there's a, there are a series of conjectures that such and such a structure uh, should be uh, invoked to explain the, uh, the, the, what has already been studied in, in terms of something more... Uh, so this is this is this is a this is a different part of the discussion. I don't want to get into it, but something that one might call more fundamental, although in a sense it's the opposite of more fundamental as that would be used by, by the physicists. So, for example, Peter Schulze uh, was given this uh, position, became the youngest professor in Germany on the basis of his contributions to constructing uh, a, a theory, a kind of theory that had uh, uh, been anticipated, that explained many many of, of the phenomena that had been, or the, 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 the mathematical theorems that had been developed. So I, I think I should just stop there. Sure, I mean, I'm happy to say, I, I guess um, the two things that I want to say is that I, I come to it, I'm an historian, so I come to this question for a little bit from a different perspective. Um, what I'm interested in is the question, how the question of existence uh, ideas about ontology, specifically in mathematics, have changed over time, right? So um, when Michael was just talking about the question about foundation, right, we know that interest in the foundation of mathematics really at the end of the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century really started because of the discovery of non-Euclidean geometry, right? So part of what interests me is how new mathematical developments, new idea, new research project, call into question what are already kind of existing assumptions that uh, people, uh, um, and mostly I'm both philosophers, but I'm also thinking about mathematicians themselves uh, are thinking. Um, so this is kind of the, the, the question that interests me is how these ideas about ontology and epistemology change over time in relation to research itself. Um, and then to get to this question that you were saying about the ontology and epistemology, it's, it's, I, was, I thought it was very interesting because one of the things that I've been thinking about for a long time is that in a way in mathematics, there is no distinction between ontology and epistemology. I mean, I know I'm saying, I know it's a big claim uh, and I'm throwing it on purpose out there. Um, but uh, if you take something, um, Let's take something like the notion that there exists a four-dimensional object, right? For years, for, for centuries, mathematicians did not acknowledge that this is something that's even possibility. It's only in the 19th century that this idea that the four-dimensional exists, four-dimensional space, right, uh, uh, exists, comes along. And then first, how mathematicians learn to think about the four-dimension also then shapes what is the existence of a four dimension is. There's a way in which the, the, the way people think about the ontology and the way of thinking about epistemology um, are so linked in mathematics. And I'm surrounded by philosophers, so I, I kind of want to throw that back at you. Uh, at, you know, how do we make that distinction uh, uh, historically and even right now? So I don't do philosophy and mathematics, but I am interested in existence, so I, I assume that's why I was invited here. Um, so I think that's maybe one thing. It's a couple questions just as a person coming to the outside of this that maybe I'll just 
enter into the discussion for downstream people to consider. Um, how do we tell when we are using a notion of existence that is metaphysically committal or not? Uh, you might think um, when you're doing mathematics, you don't care whether or not at the end of the day um, the numbers that you're talking about or the functions or whatnot um, really exist. That might be something that's um, not relevant to your concerns as a practicing mathematician. But you might still wonder, does the fact that I don't care mean that I'm not using a notion of existence that's committal, or is it to, that I just don't care whether I am using a committal notion? Hoping that you, I, I, may I interject because I have a, a, it's not a joke, it's a true story. Uh, I was, one of the reasons I'm here is that the first things that happened for my career as a, some, a mathematician who was invited to talk about things other than mathematics, I was invited to review a book for the notices of the American Mathematical Society. And the book, I made me, I had to read a, a fair amount of philosophy, including Heidegger at the time, which... Uh, Did you say Heidegger? Heidegger, yes. <laughs> Heidegger. You know, it was, it was, it's a written, book written by a mathematician, but he, well, well... Well, well Heidegger studied uh, mathematics, people often mm -hmm. forget that. He has mm -hmm. a double degree in mathematics and theology, which mm -hmm. kind of explains what's going on. So while I was <laughs> thinking about this, I was at a conference in Münster, and I was sitting at a table drinking beer with some of my colleagues, and they were discussing the uh, reality of the continuum. Right? There was a German, an American, and a French. Right? This, is, this is a true story. This is one of these things that, they, that, you, can't, that you can't make up. So the, the Frenchman said, didn't believe the real numbers exist. These are all very successful mathematicians, by the way. They're all, and they all work in number theory. The, the Frenchman said, no, he just doesn't believe it. Doesn't, 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 doesn't stop him from working with them. The Germans said, well, he doesn't believe that they exist individually, but as a, uh, I, I, as a collective, I mean, they had some sort of collective existence. And the Americans said, not only do they exist, but he can show you one anytime you come uh, to his computer screen. He can just, he can just make them exist. So, all of them are doing mathematics, the same kind of mathematics, reading each other's papers. So in that sense, uh, I would say there's no, if, if there's a medical, metaphysical commitment, it's something that escapes any of the people to, uh, who are, would supposedly be committed. And so I would say that if a commitment is not uh, conscious, it, it doesn't count. You know, one of the things the last three or so comments bring out is this idea you started, Michael, by mentioning that some objects are posited. Some seem to be discovered based on mathematical research. Others, one starts by positing. So even the idea, as you say, Ama, of four-dimensional space was originally sort of put out there as a, as a, a, almost like a prescriptive. And then later it seems to be an existent. And maybe that's a little bit about what you were talking about at the beginning. There's this, uh, edge between the being of it, the positing of it, and then the discovery of it, which is more of an epistemological issue, I suppose. So Chris, look what you provoked. Do you want to carry on? Well, maybe Parshu will get a chance well, to. Yeah. Well. Okay. So um, I, I uh, liked the uh, idea of physics as 
fundamental that Harold started with um, uh, in and in 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 particular the idea that particles and fields are fundamental, which um, seems to have gone out in recent versions, uh, uh, recent views about quantum mechanics. Um, um, I also uh, I also liked Michael's idea that in mathematics. Uh, uh, mathematical en entities don't exist in the same way that physical entities do. That uh, that existence in uh, mathematics is uh, special. Um, my my early uh, work was uh, trying to put these together. So there's no there's no problem when you just consider pure mathematics uh, of just uh, uh, saying, well, basically, any consistent theory is fine. Um, there is an issue, though, about the applications of mathematics. And um, uh, so in particular, people, uh, there, there was a time at least when 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 people argued that the same reasons for for believing in uh, particles and and fields uh, also uh, were reasons for for believing in the existence of mathematical entities because the idea was that the reason for believing in mathematical entities is that all our best theories postulate them. But all our best theories are formulated in heavy mathematical language, so they also postulate mathematical entities. And um, so, uh, so the same, same argument that applied to uh, particles and, and fields all, all so applied to mathematical entities. Um, so I didn't like this con con conclusion. I mean, I I, I wanted Michael's view that um, that uh, basically uh, in whatever sense mathematical entities exist, it's just because uh, there's a, a consistent theory in in solving them. So uh, a bunch of my work has been trying to uh, reconcile these two, two mm -hmm. things. And, and the, in, in the initial stage, it was trying to show that you can actually formulate the physical theories without uh, postulating mathematical entities. And in more recent years, it's, it's kind of taken a, a different turn. But, uh, but the but reconciling the views that the two of you mentioned has been sort of a, uh, a major project of my uh, work in, in philosophy of mathematics. But let me just, you know, just relate to what the mathematicians, sort of, so to speak, what they, you know, the, the idea of non-committal or something. Um, when you talk to, you know, you mentioned that conference in Interlaken last year. One of the keynote speakers there was, uh, guess who? Roger Penrose. Mm -hmm. Roger Penrose 
is actually both. He is an accomplished mathematician and an accomplished physicist. And Roger Penrose, would, I mean, he's completely clear uh, uh, about his belief that mathematical objects exist. Uh, and not only in the, in the sense of let x be or something like that. Uh, uh, 10 years earlier, we had a conference with Alarcon. Alarcon is, an, is totally serious about mathematical objects exist out there. And this is interesting also with respect to another debate, the debate between uh, the question, is mathematics discovered or is it invented? And of course, all these people have written a lot about this. And I only want to, want to say that um, it seems to me, simply due to the existence of these people, <laughs> that somehow the question is still unresolved. And I mean, as you know, there are physicists like whatever, you know, David Deutsch, George Ellis, who now say mathematical objects are the prime causal force for the universe. I mean, George thinks causation is primarily from mathematical objects to the material energetic system of the universe. And he's, it's not that he's a, a, you know, either an incompetent ma mathematician or an incompetent um, you know, physicist because he wrote the standard book about mm -hmm. space-time with Stephen Hawking in 1973. That's so right. you know, I think he knows what he's doing in the technical field, but he believes that, right? And David Deutsch is also not like a zero figure in quantum computing. And uh, he also argues that you know, he thinks the major mistake that the philosophers that he's surrounded <laughs> with at Oxford is that they do not get this. So you know, I think there's an interesting sociological uh, piece of evidence, right? So uh, there are those. And there are those mathematicians and physicists, right? So that apparently yeah. it's, it's not sufficient to be either a good mathematician or physicist to... Just to finish uh, the, what I wanted to say, mm -hmm. originally the idea was actually also to have Max Tegmark here. Max Tegmark has written this book, you all know it, in which he uh, claims mathematics is not only existing in the sense that it is a basis for physics, but it also exists per se. I mean, he, the book's title is The Mathematical Universe. It exists per se, and every, you know, if you would put a kind of evolution of existence, then mathematics would be the first thing that exists you know, in his belief. I mean, I'm only, I'm only throwing this around, you know. <laughs> it's a little bit hard to buy. I mean, Max Tegmark is an extremist in this, in this, in this case, but um, I don't know. Invention or discovery? Can I, can I bring it back to history? Just, yes. just because I always find it useful. Um, so, I think that a lot of the, pro the this, this conversation about um, the, the issue at stake about discovery, not to say the discovery and the relation between physics and mathematics in, in terms of existence, um, is again something that becomes a real problem only in the turn of the 19th century and the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, if, in, if until then people believed that mathematics arise out of, in many ways, arise out of the, out of the world, right? If, if a mathematical concept understood as an abstraction, right? A, uh, the notion of a fundamental triangle was an abstraction from you know all the individual triangles that one have seen, right? That's the basic idea. So if you think about mathematics this way, as mathematics existing abstracted as something that comes from the world, then the notion that mathematics then applies to physics and that you need physics, you need mathematics and physics is not as problematic, right? It's only once at the turn of the 20th century, once you mathematicians and philosophers believe that mathematics is no longer bound by the world, that mathematical ideas are not just descriptive of what's out there, mm -hmm. then the, the philosophical question about what's the relation between physics and mathematics become as troubling as it is 
for us today, right? So it's not to say uh, there's an answer, it's just to say that that itself has a history, yeah. that itself has kind of a, a history that's, I think, important to think through. Um, and uh, I mean, again, I don't have the answer to that, but I think that looking at what was the question at the turn of the century helped us kind of think mm -hmm. through a little bit mm -hmm. about how we think about this question about existence and the role of mathematics. And I'll just say one more word about it. At the turn of the century, mathematicians really, I mean, there are a lot of mathematicians that really cared about it. And the idea was, so people like George Birkhoff, for example, or Veblen as well, they um, were thinking about what is it now to say that mathematics applies to physics, right? What does it say now to mathematics? If mathematics doesn't come out of the world, it's not an abstraction for the world, how can we think about it? And, and the argument that they end up making is that, and I should say building on kind of a, uh, in a Hilbert's idea of axiomatics mostly, but the argument that they end up making is that the, the, this, the, the, the uh, difference between a number and you know, uh, an electron is not one of kind, but of degree. That it's all abstractions, all the way up. And, and right, I mean, the, the, it's not that the numbers are, and, and the electrons are two different kinds. Um, so again, this is all things that have con been contested at a given moment for particular reasons. Right. So even in, even in the case of, say, mid-19th century math, like Riemann on, on differentiable manifolds, um, so there's, I mean, if you really think that all that exists is uh, physical space and its contents, um, there's, so the way you standardly explain differentiable manifolds introduces things that are not in the physical space because it, it, it introduces the, uh, uh, tangent spaces, and so if you really think that all there is is physics, then you might think that well, you you really need to be able to re redescribe uh, the mathematics of, of differential geometry without going into the tangent space, but just. Using the curves in the space itself, and uh, probably that can be done, but there is uh, at least a, a technical challenge. And so maybe, maybe um, you think this challenge isn't really worth doing because because the tangent space is a, a fairly simple idealization. But but it. Just depends, really, on, on your attitude to how much idealization you are, are, are prepared to think is is okay. I'm wondering how often some of these formulas are used as analogies, and if that's relevant to what you were starting to say, Chris, in terms of the other realities that are somehow related to all of these these ideas and elements. Can you say a bit more about what you mean by analogy? Um, well, I'm just, I mean, coming, I know that there's all sorts of analogies that are drawn from physics and drawn from mathematics by people like me who don't really know what I'm talking about. And yet, I'm talking about something that has to do with existence and experience. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought you were sort of approaching that um, realm in what you were saying earlier. So, 
the question I was um, at least trying to raise was the question about how how we can tell whether a theory is committed to some genuine entities or not. And I was suggesting that it's, it's not sufficient to simply look at some practitioners um, who are disavowing commitment to, to say that the theory isn't committed. Um, and maybe the, the kind of um, antidote that you were alluding to with people that you both mentioned further, further illustrate that point, because you can have um, successful theoreticians who disagree on whether or not the theory is committed uh, to the entities in question. Um, and so I think, I think it's, it, it takes a bit of work to figure out what, what actually are the metaphysical consequences of a, of a given theory, whether it's in mathematics or, or physics or whatnot. It's, um, it could be that there are some people that don't care about that, and so it's, a, it's irrelevant to the, the primary things that they're working on. But, um, and let me add that, you know, like, you need a lot of philosophical theorizing, right, to state exactly what is at stake when you ask, for instance, say, the discovery versus invention distinction. So there's a very broad tendency, and I think this is a mistake in ontology. So it's, as it were, not an option, it's a real mistake, but, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a mistake that many people make. I call this naive ontological realism. So according to naive ontological realism, you think that you're really committed to something, that it really exists, if it's mind-independent, right? So you think of it in terms of, you know, how things were before there were minds, or how things are if you abstract away from the fact that they're minds. Right? So remarkably, you think that the hallmark of existence is what I call the world without spectators. Take the spectators out, and what's left, that exists. Right? That is, I think, problematic to the, as, a, as a criterion for existence, trivially, because minds exist. Right? So if your view is, there are minds, they shouldn't matter, and then there's matter, and that this shouldn't be mental, and whatever is in, on this side is the existent stuff, and the other thing is kind of either non-existent, or has to emerge, uh, supervene, or do things that are not fully existing, I think then you already got into like philosophical trouble. And some ways of formulating, some versions of formulating the discovery versus invention, distinction for mathematical objects, or in other fields, you know, fictional objects, have similar, you know, raise similar problems, you know, dream objects, you know, you dream of a certain unicorn, you know, then, you know, did you discover the unicorn or did you invent it? You know, there, there are similar problems there. And I think that quite often, you know, if we don't settle the, these purely philosophical issues beforehand, then we get easily confused. I think that's really a contribution that philosophy will make there. And you needn't be, you know, why, right, you needn't be like a trained ontologist to be like a really good mathematician or physicist. These are, you know, orthogonal course, uh, capacities, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in physics, usually, um, the practicing physicist is not concerned with these questions at all, in, in most cases. I mean, in philosophy of physics, we have exceptions, of course, mm -hmm. right? But the practicing physicist, if you ask him about ontology, he will just, um, he will either not understand you or he will close the door and, and keep you outside, you know, because he is just, He's, he goes into his lab in the morning, switches on the pumps, and uh, makes his uh, uh, spectra, and, 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 and then he analyzes them. And that, that's, that's the work of 99.9% .9 of people working in, phys in physics. Then there is this remaining 0.1%, 
who are, who are actually interested in uh, these philosophical um, questions. And uh, when you know, the advent of quantum mechanics actually erased the attention of this 0.1%, uh, in all, because in quantum mechanics, the first time in the history of physics, the measurement itself becomes a problem. It, it, it didn't happen before. And, and um, why is this so? It is so because um, I don't know, I don't go into all the, these formal details, but conceptually speaking, it is so that the state of a system that you measure has to be understood differently from the state of the system as it exists ontically before you measure it. And that the additional complication is once you measure the system, you extract information. So this is an epistemic process. But at the same point, you act back on the system so that it becomes, so, so that it moves into a, into a state of being, the ontic state, in which it was not before. So the information that you extract is actually already outdated when you read it out somehow. And that's, that's a complication that you, that you never had before, and th that drove people crazy in physics in, in, the, or in the early days of quantum mechanics, until uh, in the 1970s, some philosophers of physics, Erhard Scheibe and others, came up and really saw how they can conceptually solve this riddle with the introduction of ontic and epistemic states which is now, when you go to Perimeter Institute and other institutions, everybody talks about psi-ontology and psi-epistemology. So this, is, this has become a standard notion in the interpretation of, of quantum mechanics. An interesting case, actually, because there it becomes important. Otherwise, you, you confuse everything all the time if you don't make that distinction. And if, I don't know whether this is now really a, um, a, a philosophy, whether this is a distinction that philosophers might um, understand as something that has really to do with ontology and epistemology, or whether this is, again, only another kind of practical use of the notions. You see what I mean? So I just thought the issue about measurement was different. I mean, even, even pre-quantum, I mean, uh, uh, measurements do always disturb the system. I mean, and you can say, okay, well, well you can reduce the uh, disturbance to a, a small amount uh, more, more than you can in uh, quantum mechanics. But, I agree. I agree completely. But I think disturbance by by a measurement is uh, certainly not itself novel. What I would have thought of is, is the real problem about measurement in quantum mechanics is that the, the early formulations of the theory um, took it as uh, this, this uh, special process that uh, wasn't quantum mechanically Explained. So, 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 there was supposed to be this uh, uh, more or less general uh, uh, law of quantum evolution 
but then it was supposed to be broken by measurement, even though measurement presumably is a, a physical process. So, so how how could 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 measurement break the uh, general laws? And I think for, I, I'm I think we're on the same. Um, um, I, I I do I do think that in in recent years there have have become attempts to. Uh, to to uh, uh, resolve this problem, uh, I'm, I think I, I would have cited uh, John Bell as the as the physicist that uh, made the greatest contribution. We're talking about weak measurements now, where we can reduce the interaction to a, to an extent that is all, that is almost becomes becomes invisible anymore. But I agree with you completely. Measurement is always an interaction. That's right. Right. But in quantum mechanics, it turned out as a problem. And you know, of course, you are right that the measurement does not follow the laws of unitary evolution. That's what you're mentioning. You need a different law, or at least it, at least in the early theories, it, they both said that law didn't hold, but also didn't offer a, a serious alternative law that did hold. I don't want to amplify this too much, but um, let me just mention why I still think that it is an important conceptual difference, because what you come up with in quantum mechanics is, uh, I mean, the important insight that sequence of measurements makes a difference. Well, we call it non-commutativity of observations and so on. That can be easily understood, actually, by the fact that when you make a measurement and you change the state, then you make the second measurement of another observable, then you make that measurement already on another state, which means that when you, when you invert the sequence of measurements, you get a different result. Right. Right? In that sense, right. it becomes important at, at the, really at the basis, even at the mathematical basis of the theory. Let me uh, get back to mathematics yeah. a little yes. bit to say, uh, even starting when you talk about measurement, then pretty much all the time you are talking about a measurement with respect to a theory which is based upon properties, or presumed properties of the real numbers. So of course, real, when we're talking about reality, uh, real, nothing is more real nor less real than, than the real numbers. The word real was introduced in, 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 as a, to, to draw a distinction with the imaginary numbers, which were uh, very problematic. And even, I didn't even realize this until yesterday, that uh, even Cauchy, who invented the theory of uh, complex analysis, of, uh, wrote somewhere that he would have preferred not for there not to be imaginary numbers. But, but that's, but that, and what, were they or there or not? But they, they come up in the, in the uh, in, uh, processing the equations. What are the real numbers? Well, the real numbers were uh, invented, I guess maybe I gave that away. Uh, but I could, one could also say discovered, because people use these things. Uh, indiscriminately um, for the purposes of physics and uh, to allow and to, to make it possible to, to get past the, the pre-Socratic paradoxes of, of, of continuity. And so things were fine. Things were fine. There were, people were working with real numbers except that uh, there, was no, uh, there was no axiomatic, complete axiomatic theory until the middle of the uh, 19th century. And then it turned out 
that the axiomatic theory was, uh, was settled, but then these real numbers have properties that people couldn't understand. Uh, the the, the, uh, the, uh, the point, the, the crucial point, was the discovery that uh, the continuum hypothesis was undecidable. You don't know how many real numbers there are. In fact, you can, it's up to the theoretician to decide how many, how, how, how many real numbers there are. I, uh, so, um, and maybe right now I should, uh, I wanted to make an apology to uh, the set theorist because I was, I'd, I'd written an article in, in Quanta in which I suggested that uh, set theorists were concerned about the kinds of foundations uh, for set theory that were used in, by number theorists uh, in proving, for example, Fermat's last theorem. There was, a, there was some controversy around that. And, that, and I actually learned by interacting with set theorists that this is not at all their concern. They were not trying to establish rules for, uh, let me wave to the, any of these set theorists are, are watching. Um, they were not, they're not all interested in establishing rules. Uh, some people, not set theorists, uh, were concerned, and I'm not sure where this, uh, where, where this, this controversy came from. Anyway, that's, uh, the, the upshot is that uh, as, to, maybe to, to move to the 21st century, um, that's, it, now. that's now, yes, well, we're, we're not going to project. The, uh, these same questions uh, remain unsettled in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, that is to say, what kind of uh, foundations for set theory do you want? And it so happens that the kinds of mathematics that are being developed, not, in, in fact, in part, in order to, to provide uh, mathematically uh, co coherent explanations of some physical theories, theories some, some, some things that are being developed in, in, uh, in string theory in particular, uh, involve going beyond the axioms, the Zermelo-Frenkel axioms of set theory. So, on inaccessible cardinals, for example. And so um, then the question is, who decides, who decides what, is the, what the foundations might be? What are the foundations of mathematics? Well, it's becoming more and more popular to uh, develop theories, to use theories that are uh, based on the presumption of existence, of, of existence, in the sense that one works with them, of inaccessible cardinals. Uh, but that means there's big, big sets that are much, much bigger than anything one can produce by the intellect. One has to, that's why they're called inaccessible, because there's no, no reason cannot uh, establish their uh, existence on the basis of the axioms, even including the existence of infinite sets. They're much, much more infinite. In fact, there are something called a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy of different kinds of infinities. And which, where do us want, want to stop within that hierarchy? Well, the, the, only, the only historically uh, reasonable answer to that question is that mathematicians are going to use whichever uh, kinds of foundations for set theory that provide the answers to the questions that, they, that uh, we uh, considered to be reasonable and important. <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say that, it, I mean, it's, I, I wanna, it seems to me that one of the things that came up in uh, a few of the comments is this distinction between the philosopher and the mathematician and what sort of, what you think, 
maybe the mathematician himself don't have certain kind of commitment, but metaphysical commitment, but you know, that's where physicists come. But I, I'm gonna try to push on that just because I'm here and why not? Um, and just ask, can you even go, like, I mean, what does it mean to go behind, beyond the mathematicians themselves, right? I mean, the, the example that Michael just gave is one in which the mathematicians are the one that getting to a point that they re, redefine what the foundation is, or they, the question of deciding, if I understood you correctly, right? You need to re question again what the foundation which the theory uh, builds on, right? So the, the um, where, in, where the kind of questions about the existence always come from the practicing mathematicians or, I mean, the indecent question or, I mean, physicists, you can think about it as well. So what is even the separation that you're, the, between the, the, philo the philosophy and the, the kind of the mathematicians? Well, you know, mathematics is a discipline with its own rule book, including mm -hmm. a sociology, you know, what counts mm -hmm. as evidence, it's, you know, like a right. whole discipline that mm -hmm. you can characterize in manifold ways, and so is philosophy. And they sometimes intersect in the history, right? Uh, sometimes big time, Plato, Aristotle. Some, uh, sometimes like super big time, Cantor, set theory, right? Then a little less right now, right? So you can describe those curves and philosophy is just one of those disciplines, right? So, and then philosophy to something, you know, so it would be, of course, an interesting question, right? I mean, contemporary ontology is like a very well-developed field, right? It's, there's a lot happening in ontology and meta-ontology and metaphysics and meta-metaphysics and how they relate, right? So that's its own development. And these fields like intersect in very interesting ways and that always remains to be explored, right? With what's going on in contemporary mathematics. My experience talking to my mathematics friends and uh, colleagues is that indeed there's a very widespread pragmatism when you talk to, uh, you know, very high level mathematicians, they would say, there's a sense in which right now we care less, right? So, uh, you know, uh, um, and, uh, and, and then there might be an interesting question about why this is so, right? So, uh, uh, why in the field is this the case, right? But I think that uh, uh, what we need to bear in mind when we ask these questions about philosophy and other disciplines, this, is often, this often goes unnoticed, in uh, particular in the Anglophone world, because there's a different, very different way of thinking about uh, the philosophy's you know, position in the academic division of labor, but in my neck of the woods, you know, we think of philosophy as just you know, another discipline, it's just one of the sciences. Yeah. So I, I want to yeah. make sure that you didn't misunderstand. No, 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 but this is like, this is, I think right. this is a, right. you know, so uh, uh, that's why, you know, if you ask me, I think, you know, we all, if you do philosophy off, and then that's another discipline, say mathematics or history. Of course. I'm doing yeah. history of mathematics. So I understand yeah. what you, it's, that was, yeah. that's what I'm trying to say. It's not, I'm not trying to say that philosophy has no place. There was not really, the, yeah. the really question was try to say, how do you explain the, the, yeah relation when you think about those specific questions, right, about ontology of, and we're talking here about ontology of mathematics, yeah. then how do you understand the relation between the philosophy and the mathematics, again, historically, right, how do you understand the, the way in which the ideas that are arise from mathematics then influence the kind of philosophical debates or the other way, right? I, I do think that there is, obviously there's two ways. Yes, that. it goes two ways, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. So, like, but but yeah. how do we, that's the, the question I was ready to say, how do you understand that relation? Yeah. yeah, I would ask Michael, for instance, you know, the way in which Michael developed his relationship, you know, towards uh, set theory, you know, I would want to know whether you would, you know, so there's a view, let's just call it, you know, uh, mathematical pluralism, and, you know, I'm heavily simplifying, but, you know, like roughly it go, would go something like that. Look, they're very different, you know, it depends on, the foundations that you choose, right? So there's a, re there's a sense in which you can just choose your axiom system, 
this is something we learned from metamathematics uh, of the second half of the 20th century, right? Uh, and uh, and then there's this mathematics and this <coughs> other mathematics, and the 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 choice between the axioms can be, you know, in terms of like elegance, there can be all sorts of mathematical internal criteria for why a mathematician would say I go for this rather than that, right? And then this kind of pluralism would just mean that there's no you know, uh, uh, then this would raise, a, for instance, for me, a philosophical question, you know, is there even a universe of mathematical entities, you know, uh, 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 if we interpret the uh, contemporary mathematics realistically, right? So, so even if we think that they are committal, you know, uh, um, uh, 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 given mathematical pluralism, is there like a universe of mathematical objects given what mathematicians know right now. That's something that would come to my mind. But this would also depend, you know, like we have a leading philosopher mathematician here, so I don't know how Hartree looks at this, you know, how you would describe this discourse. Right. So just, I, I, yeah. I, I view myself as a, a pluralist here, and, yeah. and so just uh, sharpening the issue slightly in, in terms of the example that Michael raised about. Uh, so uh, Michael said that the continuum hypothesis is undecidable. Um, I mean, in in some senses, radically understate things in that you can give almost any answer you want to what its size is, and it will be consistent with the rest of the axioms of of said theory. Yeah, um, but. Um, so, so a, a version of the pluralist view that 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 I kind of like is that there really is no serious question: what is the real size of the continuum? There are uh, um, uh, basically any any consistent answer is uh, perfectly okay, and the idea of of asking which is the right one is just a wrong-headed way to think about it. And that this marks a serious difference between mathematics and uh, physics, where, where uh, uh, basically there is a right answer, even if we don't know it. Aren't you considering that there might be, at a later time, a reason to choose? There are. The set, so, this is what the set theorists want. Yeah, they I, want to. They want to find right. Maybe add axioms because the set of right. axioms was just established to make set theory workable and use, useful. And if they and add consist, an axiom, right. a couple but, more axioms, right? But 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 what they do is they offer aesthetic criteria for for saying, well, you know, it's. It's a prettier theory if you make the size of the continuum the uh, smallest possible, or the second smallest, or or whatever. And and uh, different people offer uh, different aesthetic criteria that you mentioned support one or, geometry before or the and other. How it could be described, perhaps this way, and then using the dimensions. <clears throat> and how does that decision get made? And is that an aesthetic one, or are there other considerations? Well, uh, so I'm not sure I understand the question. It, um, if, um, I mean, 
One thing which I, I think may be your question, but uh, but probably isn't. But but um, um, uh, so so uh, uh, theories of of differentiable manifolds are developed using the theory of the real numbers and. The, the the different answers to the size of the continuum um, uh, give you different pictures of what the real numbers are like. So, um, uh, um, but so there's a, a separate question as to how much objectivity there is uh, about, uh, say, lines in physical space. Um, but he, but he, even if, if you thought it was completely objective, uh, what the size of infinity of the of the uh, lines in in physical space was, um, uh, that doesn't really settle the size of the continuum as mathematicians tend to view it, because because uh, mathematicians tend to think well. Uh, uh, mathematical reality is it's one thing; physical reality is something else. Of course, we 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 got to our conception of the mathematical real numbers by thinking about physical space. But still, there are different things. It could turn out em empirically that physical lines <clears throat> aren't anything like the real numbers. I mean, maybe they're just, just like the rational numbers. But, but the uh, mathematical uh, realist thinks, well, uh, that doesn't tell you anything about the real numbers. It jo jo shows that the, the physical lines needn't correspond to the real numbers. So, so um, even if there's a question as an objective question, as to the size of infinity of uh, physical lines, um, I think the the typical mathematical non-pluralist is going to say, well, um, there's no obvious reason why the answer to the question of the uh, size of the genuine real numbers uh, has to be the same as that. I want to suggest, I'm sorry, yes. Want to do get to the other realities? Yes, exactly. That was my yeah. point too. Um, uh, and I think that has a lot to do with the notion that uh, that popped up in some of the commentary in the last maybe ten minutes. The notion of pluralism. Um, you, you know, in, in the in the sciences, when you look at the development of the sciences, I mean, physics is the paradigm example, but the others too. Uh, talking about ontology always had, I think, historically speaking. Um, the the or or brought the implicit request not only to talk about something that exists but actually to talk about one thing that exists not many levels not not pluralistic one fundamental ontology and of course this has good reasons I mean for physics one of the interesting reasons behind that was actually that physicists tr try to formalize mathematically and in mathematics you can. Uh, very powerfully do that with symmetry principles, and and this the symmetry increasing the symmetry always uh, has a kind of taste of the unification picture. Unification picture leads to one fundamental ontology. Now, um, 
this this fundamental way to look look at things also created the idea that in physics this is actually a byproduct it's secondary but it, it's created by the fundamentalisms let me speak let me say uh, that everything can be reduced to this fundamental level so all other descriptions like thermodynamics hydrodynamics physical chemistry can somehow be reduced, and of course then we have to explain in detail what we mean by that, uh, to a kind of elementary fundamental ontology. And I think this program has, um, I mean, it, from the very beginning it was of course not realized to its full extent, but people were thinking in principle this is doable, and now in certain areas we uh, know for sure that it's, that it's not working that way. We know now I mean, this is still not covered in the textbooks, but we know that thermodynamics cannot be reduced to statistical mechanics. I mean, what I'm saying is the, the knowledge that we have at statistical mechanics is not enough to create thermodynamics. And the fact that Lord Kelvin and others, Boltzmann, they, they, they had this heuristic guess of, this, of the relation between the kinetic energy of the molecules and the temperature was, was completely heuristic. We only understand that really fully uh, since the 1970s through quantum, through quantum field theory and, and developments by Rudolf Haag and others. Uh, this is algebraic quantum field theory. Only at that late time, 100 years after the heuristic guess, it became possible to build the bridge really in a prof mathematically profound way. And then it turns out that you, in order to make the bridge, it's not enough that you know that you know the lower level, the mechanical level. You have to you have to select a context at the higher level and implement that at the lower level, and then you can make the bridge formally, in a formally sound manner. So this this is in a way is an example for a kind of pluralism because if it is, if this is so, then you have to assume that the temperature of a container of gas is also a property that exists in the ontological sense, mm -hmm. in physics. It cannot be fully reduced to, the, to, mechan to mechanical properties. I'm can I, I try can to explain to that more fully? I, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, it. maybe it's just my ig ig ignorance. I don't believe what you wanted to say. <laughs> I, well, that's stronger than I, I wanted yeah, to, no. to say, but, but I, I would like to be convinced. In more or, detail. Um, this be, of course, this becomes yeah, okay. technical. Uh, maybe it's too hard. But we can maybe we can, can do it over dinner or something. Okay. I, I, okay. I'm ready to do that okay. actually. Okay, good. But okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm only giving you this picture because everybody knows what temperature is and everybody knows what the, the motion of molecules somehow is, and it's a, it's actually a simple example which I wanted to use to really talk about um, now to, to get the discussion into the pluralism thing and. And um, I think for us in, in physics, uh, we, in some way we have to, to give up this kind of deep-seated conviction that everything goes back to the particles. Let me ask a yes. question about other realities. Maybe you don't want to answer this, because much more radical than, uh, than the emergence of temperature as a separate property is uh, uh, the notion that you can actually quantify over all possible ontologies. And then there are, I, I don't know how seriously physicists take the notion of multiverse, but is that, uh, oh, that. Well, okay. is that, uh, is that, what is, uh, but
but I, but people certainly do talk about it quite a lot. I know. Uh, you, just, <laughs> that doesn't make me happy, actually. I see. <laughs> no, and this is a, this is a different idea of pluralism, because in, in, if you if you go that way, mm -hmm. then you have you have all these levels of description that I want to have as pluralistic. You have you you, you double the pluralism in each universe. You have them again, and in the next universe, you have all of that again. And this is the, I mean, <laughs> I know this is an interpretation of quantum mechanics, which some people. Um, appreciate. I, I don't. I want to switch the register a bit to get more to the other realities because from the outside, mathematics and number carry the notion of real truth. The reality is carried by, by the numbers, whether it's polling numbers or you know how many people believe such and such. And, it, and I think it's had a profound effect on our society and our culture. Mm. And Alma has written and worked on the whole idea of how numbers get used in terms of the political scene. And I mean, I think you maybe don't realize the amount of authority that we on the outside of your world project onto number. And I'd like to understand that a little bit in terms of how it affects the other realities, not just what the other realities are. Is that of interest? To you, Alma. <laughs> to me, it's of interest, but I'm uh, I'm in a company. I mean, I I, I should say just that there's a. I wonder I wonder to what degree these two conversations um, relate to one another. Um, I think that you're absolutely right to the degree to which the reality of kind of so there's a very famous book in the history of mathematical by uh, Ted Porter called Trust in Numbers, which really deals to this question uh, really of how. Um, Making a numerical argument have you know one in a sense why why and he has I mean the argument is much more complicated than this uh, the history that he tells um, but this notion that like you were saying that numbers have a certain kind of numerical argument has a certain kind of validity that um, uh, other sort of argument might not have uh, but I wonder to what degree and I'm, I'm asking that back I mean to a degree that relates to the ontological question of number. I don't know, right? I mean, is it just a numbers used as conventions here when people make new argument based on kind of um, numbers, or is it really has to do with the other question that we've been talking about until now, which is down the existence, the real existence of numbers? So I'm kind of going to throw that back. <laughs> I, I would have thought that the reason why numerical arguments that use a lot of numbers <coughs> Uh, tend to sound more convincing is just because they give the appearance of precision, mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes they are more precise, and so it's clearer to see what the the argument is. So, uh, and that's not a very deep observation, I suppose, but I mean it's it's. Um, what what is precision? That's I think a deep question. <laughs> what, what, why is precision important? Yeah, yeah where's the subjective factor that gets related to these things that? Well, if you, if, you have, if you have quantum mechanics or, or if you have electrodynamics and you solve a certain problem, then you get a solution and the experiment um, coincides with that solution, let's say, in five, five digits after the comma. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and after that, if you measure further, then it deviates. Now you do quantum electrodynamics, you get the next three digits correct. And that, in that sense, precision <coughs> might be uh, an important thing to test your theory, mm -hmm. precision in terms of numbers. So but the way it was, but is precision a 
future value that you're Yeah. No, no, I think I think the way in which we, as physics, I mean, at least in theoretical physics or mathematical physics, the way in which we apply, let me say, mathematics has nothing so much to do with numbers. It's really what we apply is the is the is this the structure. It's actually a qualitative feature that that goes into the into the physics when you come from math. And then, of course, when we solve it, and we have equations, you can have an equation, and then it sits there. But then you want to solve it, and then you know you put in initial conditions and all this kind of stuff. Initial conditions are not something that I think mathematicians deal so much with. They just have the formal structures. I mean, yeah, yes and no. But um, can, I, can I take another stab? Maybe at what I was trying to say. Since um, if if we were more responsible, I think we we would find more precise arguments more compelling because. A more precise statement is more easily uh, is one for which it's more easy to figure out whether or not it's incorrect. Yeah. And people that are willing to assert responsibly, who are responsible about making assertions, will be willing to assert statements that are more easily falsifiable, proportionate to the degree to which they have evidence for them. And so, that in an ideal culture, we would ideally try to state things. Um, that have a degree of, of precision proportionate to our evidence for them, um, and maybe you know we're not obviously we're not there yet. Um, but given that that is something that we could imagine as an ideal, it wouldn't surprise me that um, looking outside we think, oh, this is this guy saying something that sounds very precise. He must have really good reasons to say it. Like what their rock said, at least on this side. Can I, can I bring in another reality where you see, I yeah. think, that some of these ideas about precision and the relationship to truth break down quite quickly, right? I mean, take most of the things that we all believe to be true, such as there's a certain amount of, you know, there's either a finite or, uh, well, clearly a finite, but, you know, either an odd or even number of people in this room, right? Or here, there's either an even or odd number of people here, right? Now, that is, in some sense, not very precise. It's not quantum mechanical fine resolution, because from the quantum mechanical standpoint, it's going to be hard to find the people here. Right? But it's perfectly all right and objectively true and completely unproblematic and just true that there's either an odd or even number of people here, even though probably no one in this room or not all scientists together in the world right now can tell you what one person is, because we don't know what unifies an organism, et cetera, et cetera, right? So uh, I think there are like very good exceptions to the rule that a scientifically rigorous statement, that's not what Chris intended, right, uh, with precision. But I think that if, uh, if the scale of precision that we deploy in thinking about the objectivity of truth, et cetera, et cetera, right, is modeled along the lines of the progress of modern mathematical physics, then I think we run into very serious political problems. Right? So if, uh, you know, like social problems cannot be tackled in this way. Uh, clearly not now. So, you know, like if we wonder, you know, the, the unification of physics and reduction is a hard enough problem. But going from there to like making a real prediction who's going to be the next president of the United States of America, right? There are very, very many gaps Right, uh, that you cannot fill out. You, we can fill them out, as it were, almost a priori, right? In a in a group of, you know, like here we can maybe figure out whether we should be reductionists uh, uh, about social facts or not, right? But uh, in the real world, you know, where this stuff matters, there's going to be a different form of precision. 
right? So, and I think that it will be ultimately, you know, pro very problematic on, on the real level of social facts or political facts uh, to think that, uh, you know, decision procedures there should be mathematical or, or et cetera in that sense. So there are different kinds of precision. An example that one of my, you know, professors in philosophy always gave for this, you know, the relativity of precision uh, problem is simply this, right? I mean, you fall in love with a certain person, right? And then there's a degree of uh, uh, resolution of that person's phase in which you can still recognize the person and fall in love, etc. right? If you come to close and you look at, you know, like whatever, you know, molecular details, then, uh, uh, then the object uh, that you're dealing with in this particular case simply dissolves. So I think there's no, you know, uh, there's no absolute thing, you know, precision, and uh, that is the uh, that is you know like be precise, and then you're more likely to say something true. I think quite often, if we if we are precise mathematically, we're going to say something false. Yeah, not in mathematics, right? Of course, it's not a point about mathematics. Uh, but we don't only think about mathematical objects if we think about them at all. I think uh, falling in love is a wonderful place to put pause to our conversation, and maybe invite a few of our yes. audience to come up and ask questions. Test. Some of you indicated that you believe that mathematical objects exist in, in the real universe. Uh, and um, Roger Penrose, Max Tegbark, not, notwithstanding. Um, the fact of the matter is that we describe the physics of the real universe uh, with abstract concepts like Euclidean or Riemannian geometry and differential equations. And these are all based on abstract concepts that do not exist in, in the real universe. A point, a line, a plane, a manifold, even a particle do not exist in the real universe. So my question is, can any one of you give me an example um, of a mathematical object, or more specifically, a geometric object that you believe exists in the real universe? Then, then you would have, I mean, I would have a question for you. I would say, uh, I need a better grasp on what you think is a real, the real universe, because for some people this is real, for some people that may be real. Well, you, uh, let's start with the most basic object in mathematics, a point in geometry, a point. Does a point exist in the real universe? Um, the a mathematician who thinks about mathematical realism in the sense like Roger Penrose does says yes. Well, ma it's mathematical realism, but it's yeah. not physical realism. No. There's no such thing as a physical point. No, well, but we abstract around things like what? racism, let's say, which I think people would say racism exists. But you can't literally point to. Well, yeah, racism exists, but it can, I, I don't believe that it can be described mathematically. Do you think New York it's City very, exists in the Do you think New York City exists in the real world? I believe, I believe in existence, but my question is using mathematics to describe exactly uh, the existence of real objects is a fallacy. It's an approximation at best. Even I want to say, if, if you, I mean, as I do actually, have a pluralistic worldview, then I would say biological species exist in biological reality, 
physical species exist in physical reality, mathematical species exist in mathematical reality, uh, minds exist in mental reality, and uh, free will exists in free will reality. I don't know, you know. Okay, but, so I, this, but, this but my question, my original question was, yeah. I thought that some of you agreed with people like Penrose and Tegbark that mathematical, mathematical objects actually exist in the real universe. Uh -huh. Or that the that's... real universe consists of what we call mathematical okay, objects. Okay, this is, I have to apologize, this is, was not the idea, we just brought this up in order to have something to discuss, right? I, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't believe that here. I'm like not a mathematical. I, I thought I, I, some I, of you I, said I, that you do believe that yeah. mathematical objects no, exist. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, maybe does anyone, does anyone? I, I'm not even sure I understand what the question means. Okay, yeah, <laughs> okay. I have two questions for you. Um, the first is, is there any work on whether this issue is decidable. So as you said, there are crucial issues in mathematics that have been decided that we have discovered are not decidable. And um, I'm wondering whether you feel that one can look at this question from a perspective of, is it won't be possible ever for us to decide this issue? Is there any work going on in that arena? Which, Which question is that exactly? Or whether mathematical objects are real oh, no, okay. or not. <clears throat> so this, and the second question is this. We are creatures formed from evolution, we believe. And there is some sense in which that limits how we can see the world. And I'm wondering if there's any work on whether that inherently will affect the type of beliefs that we can come up with and the types of reality that we can come up with and whether that then plays into the, the, the question of whether this is decidable or not. So there are two related questions there. Well, I think there's a lot of work. I mean, uh, contemporary philosophy is like there's, a, there's going to be a huge landscape. I don't know about philosophy of mathematics, whether there's like a prominent like skeptical position right now where someone would say that uh, you know, the answer to, the, to certain ontological questions in philosophy of mathematics is somewhat unknowable or undecidable. It's clearly not a prominent view. I don't know if this, but you know, for any, I think for any, you know, so that's, that landscape is very rich. And the other question, you know, there's, uh, there's of course a huge literature and discussion about that. I mean, most recently now, I think people are debating the Donald Hoffman book, The Case Against Reality, right? So this is a nice, you know, case uh, for, for, I think, your second question. Mm. You know, the most recent version of neuroscience has discovered for such and such a reason we cannot know reality. I think this is nonsense, but it's a very widespread uh, kind of argument. Uh. Hoffman's book that prompted the question. I didn't understand your answers to whether there is serious work going on specifically on the decidability of this question. Of the philosophy of mathematics question. Yes, mm -hmm. just general. I don't know. I don't know. That's, I would ask. If, I, if you ask um, me whom to ask, I would ask Humphrey Field so you see If you ask me, I'd say somebody else. Oh, okay. <laughs> so what I, can, what I yeah. can say is there is an interesting book um, uh, which collects dialogues between a, a mathematician, I mentioned the name before, Alain Kohn, mm -hmm. who isn't convinced, a convinced Platonist in that sense, 
with with a brain research person, Jean-Pierre Jean Jeu. Oh yeah, they did that. And and it, it, they they talk about this issue, and it's a discussion. It's it doesn't resolve. Of course, there, there are two there are two points which they try to make over 250 pages, and at the end, you decide. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you know, this is, you know that book probably, right? I'm sorry? You know that book. I don't know the title, I'm trying to remember. But if you, if you go by the authors, Con, C-O-N-N-E-S, and Changeux, that's, you find it. Okay. Well, this, I'm always bringing in the, um, another issue, but it relates to pluralism, and it relates to painting in particular, uh, and also to the question previously, uh, painters have particularly always thought they want to find the truth, or do they want to find the truth within the world of painting? And early on in painting, um, in the Renaissance, they sought for linear perspective, for anatomy, for understanding the body. And as painting evolved, they became more and more involved in this very issue of what are they searching for? Are they searching for verisimilitude in the world, or are they searching for something ontological in terms of internal or external search. And I think right now is a very pivotal time in the arts, and particularly in painting, which I know, where there is a lot of confusion about the motivation for the creation of works of art. And there are painters more in the, in the 40s, in, during the wartime, where they explored um, topological space. They went against uh, non-Euclidean non space, and. They attempted things, but then when they dealt with it, they didn't deal with it probably with the true logistics of the way a physicist or mathematician would deal with it. But it's very much a pivotal issue. Um, do, we, do we follow what we, what we are searching for internally in our internal brain structures, or are we looking at the world precisely and trying to reproduce the world? Obviously, painters are not, can no, long, no longer need to reproduce the world in the, the, the way they once did. So I came today because I'm very fascinated by this very crux of problem, ontology and epistemology, in which many painters uh, uh, have arguments about with one another about what they're trying to do. I, I, don't, I don't know if you can even begin, but just, uh, just some of your thoughts maybe on um, the possibility even of an art form uh, entering any of this discussion. I, yeah. oh, go ahead. You're I just want to say that there actually have been work on um, that have argued that the kind of there's this, the moment of the turn of the century is a modernist transformation. That there is a relation between the modernist transformation in both arts and mathematics specifically. So I'm thinking about the work of Jeremy Gray, the historian of mathematics, uh, that actually made the link specifically that this sort of question, like you were saying, uh, about what is mathematics about, what is painting about. Um, uh, Etc. are actually quite similar. So there, there have been, I don't know about, I can't answer the question right now, I can say that there have uh, been works that looked at this moment at the turn of the century uh, and made that comparison directly. Yeah, and, and, and physics. And physics as well, yes, 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 part of exactly, yeah. Simultaneously, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I recommend a forthcoming book by this gentleman, Art and Object, it's a debate between Graham Harmon, who's the author of the book that I recommend, and Michael Fried about this issue, you might find that Interesting. So there's a whole mm -hmm. recent trend in uh, ontology of art, uh, you know, which relates to that. You know, uh, so that might be interesting. Looking, you know, Michael Fried set the tone for a long time, uh, but there are like recent ontological trends also in philosophy of art that might speak to that question. Yeah, because uh, the traditional aesthetic theories 
uh, don't really hold in terms of what the real problems are now or even yeah. in the middle of the 20th century. Yes, yes, that's why there's like a whole new like strand of theorizing about this, which in the art world goes by the title of speculative realism. So you might find that material interesting. Yeah. May I say one small, one small thing? I think it might be interesting to look in whether or not there are analogies in the philosophy of music. Um, so music, it's a tone structure. It has, there's structures that musical pieces uh, exemplify. And there are similar questions about the ontology of music. So is the, is the symphony the, the physical performance? Is it the physical inscription on the paper? Or is it an abstract object that's represented by those things? And that's why one and the same symphony can be performed in different places. Um, it, it might be that because the nature of music is, is more easily detachable from particular performances of it in a way that a painting doesn't seem to be, that the, the questions will seem more parallel if we're considering those art forms rather than... Maybe architecture has also... Architecture would be another one to think about. This is also this, this very interesting analogy. I'm not sure whether it applies across the board, but there have been instances here where we hear, we learn that mathematicians or physicists don't spend that much time worrying about their ontology. Hmm. Many physicists, and I think mathematicians would say, well, that's good. And if we need to, we'll look at it. And if we're interested in it, we might look at it. The question is, is that a good prescription for painters or artists as well? Should they be spending a lot of time thinking about the ontological implications? Or is that really what art is about? Is it a good idea or a bad idea to focus on that? Should they do that more of it than mathematicians or physicists say? I'm not sure I know the answer. But similarly, what, what would you, how does the following sound to you? You know, uh, philosophers are currently discussing whether they should spend any time on doing mathematics, right? I think this would be like a bad headline. And I think similarly, the other headline is equally bad. Mathematicians now, discuss, and physicists now, uh, you know, think that they should do less ontology. I think it's equally bad. Uh, um, you know, and just go back to the great moment. You know, we, you mentioned the foundation, foundational crisis, and quantum mechanics, etc. You know, uh, Einstein wrote. You know, like one of my colleagues, uh, we just moved him from Caltech. He edits Einstein's papers. He spent a lot of time reading neo-Kantian philosophy literature, writing reviews which are now published with the Einstein papers, etc., and so forth for the other great figures. And that might not have been a coincidence. And often physicists right now worry about the grand unification and when it's coming, and then they're doing, honestly speaking, incompetent metaphysics, like uh, Max Tegmark. I think this is terrible metaphysics, what's going on there. Or Donald Hoffman is just an incompetent philosopher of mind. And so, you know, like, so that's, you know, here's bad news. Neuroscientists ca uh, care much less about ontology right now. Uh, that's Are you saying news. this is good or bad? Bad. I think this is terrible. Uh, it's equally bad. It's, you know, so a philosopher who doesn't care about mathematics. Well, you you know, don't want that to throw the baby with the bathwater yeah. because. I mean, you know, you yeah. can do bad metaphysics, as he, I mean, yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. And then, um, typically, what physicists have, you know, learned to say is yeah. when someone does metaphysics at all, it's auto automatically bad physics or bad metaphysics. Yeah. But there's very helpful metaphysics also. Of course. Someone mentioned the name of John Bell. I don't know. You, you, you mentioned it. Uh, John Bell came up with actually two metaphysical assumptions. Mm -hmm. And then he derived for one of the assumptions, classical local reality, an inequality by which you can test whether this assumption is right or wrong. So you can make, you can make empirical tests that are motivated by metaphysics, but then it has to be good metaphysics. Yes, of course. Yeah. I, th I think, I think yeah. with yeah. the yeah, artists the or with painters, 
it's yeah. really the study of the brain because I don't think it can really be controlled what they're thinking in categories. I think very often that the arts come closest to an attempt at some kind of unification of the intellect, the mind, the emotions. Right, yeah. And so, therefore, it's very hard to say, well, don't think about this, only think about that, because the act of creation is an exploration and a search for where they stand and where, how they relate to the world. So I, I think the divisions are very dangerous in terms of creativity and probably in science too, if you go deep into it. I don't know enough about yeah. it. I have a good, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to dominate this, but since we are talking about art now, it's, uh, I, this is not directly about ontology and episode, but it has to do with it. Um, there was this German artist who was made who was ridiculed by many people, Joseph Beuys. Joseph Beuys had really he had a philosophical philosophical talent to some extent, and in terms of his actions, he did this action art even here in New York in New York City. The 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 the, the action with the coyote. I mean, I don't. What 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 Beuys did conceptually was he undercut the subject-object distinction. Because he, as the artist, made himself an object of his own art by the action. So the, he, this is, this is, I think, remarkable. It's a, it's a great idea just to show people that um, it's not that here is the artist and here is the painting. He just puts himself into that room and the, together with the coyote, right? Mm. And and he does it in such a way that people were standing there and looking through the through the window and wouldn't go away for hours because they thought something must be happening. <laughs> and, and nothing happened except he was lying there with his, I don't know, you know, all these, these stuff that he usually brings with him. And then there's the coyote, you know, that was amazing. And people were, of course, they, they were getting angry because they were expecting something and nothing happened. But they didn't go away. Amazing. Now, see, he really had this talent to, to uh, do something that is philosophically highly relevant in a way that affects people. That was just, I mean, I'm just, you know, but Michael, you wanted to say something. I was just going to say that um, the history of art is a good place to look for uh, the history of the, of, the, of the value attached to precision, because uh, there are different periods when uh, precision is considered an important value, but then it doesn't always mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it can take opposite meanings. And this is also, uh, this is not unrelated to the uh, history of objectivity as, as, as uh, analyzed mm -hmm. in, in the book of uh, Destin and Gallison, uh, which again, the, the valence, uh, objectivity in that case is the value, but uh, what it means takes, it, it becomes, it moves to its opposite from one time. Yeah, I just wanted to say also, as far as uh, ontology and mathematics, there is a small group of mathematicians who are talking to philosophers. It's mm -hmm. called the N Category Cafe. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, it's been online for oh, qu quite some time. The, the original motivation was precisely uh, the, the, some concern, or not necessarily concern, about the uh, development of mathematical uh, practices that were not based on, on uh, the axioms of set theory, specifically, that were uh, and the, but what I've noticed is that the, this, there's not any much interaction between this, uh, this circle, which includes mathematicians and philosophers and physicists, and the rest of uh, philosophy. 
So oh, there's a lot of reception contemporary ontology in Europe and France in particular of category theory, mm -hmm. as a matter of fact. So that idea, I've also like happened to have written something about this. So there, there's, uh, you know, there, there's just a little more there. But yeah, so that issue, you know, like given that, uh, so category theory was, uh, uh, you know, like people became aware of this. And through through and interaction with mathematicians? Yes, yes, through those interactions, actually, with some of the founding fathers, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, in the pr mostly in the French context. Uh, oh, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, I know you know this yeah, very that. well. But yeah, and yeah, that's, but, this, yeah. but this is this is a different you know, because this is there are mathematicians yeah. from various uh, different fields. This mm -hmm. is this is because the, mm -hmm. the category theorists who were working were talking to the French philosophers were category theorists, and yeah. that was that was what they did. They were not yeah. they were somewhat isolated within mathematics. Yes, so that's, yeah. this is something different. Yeah, I need so to last question. I have a question about history, and it was mentioned that. In popular imagination, the fourth dimension at the beginning of the last century. Uh, and then in, when I was a kid, watching TV, watching Twilight Zone, uh, I think his name was Serling, he talks about the fifth dimension. And now we're in the internet age. And we were, during the introduction, uh, we talked about the three audiences, the audience in this room, the audience beyond this room, the future audience that might be looking at the archive of this event. And many of us who are observing and participating right now may be in that audience, mm. right? Because when this is uploaded, we can all look at it. So I guess my question is about the, the culture and how um, the past, present, and future is changing so quickly. Um, and how our, our participation in the technology is accelerating that. And there's a buzzword, uh, post-truth. I'm sure we've all heard that. Um, and what that could possibly mean. So I guess my general question is about um, what is all this? How is this impacting our culture and our, our imagination and our politics? It's sort of a, a, a broad question. And if, the, and if there's anything you know now that you did not know, at the beginning of this conversation. I'd be very curious about that. Thank you. I know that I have to withdraw some of my projections onto math. <laughs> That's a very important lesson. <laughs> and also, I've been thinking about Daniel Kahneman's uh, endowment principle of how much what we endow is having value because we know it or we have it changes our perception of it and its value in the world. In, throughout this conversation, I've been thinking about that, that whole endowment principle idea. Anyone else? Yeah, I was, I, I, I actually wanted to ask you that later tonight. Right. What do you think of Don Hoffman's book? But now I know. Yes, yes, uh, this is the shorter story. You know, I've been working, I run a research center called Reality in Crisis, a center for the human being in the digital age. It's a large international research network uh, which spans disciplines here at uh, NYU, University of Tokyo, Peking University, and Paris and Cambridge in the future. And, um, and so it's, uh, it deals with all these uh, post-truth, et cetera, phenomena on various levels. So I think that, you know, uh, let me be very brutal about this, I think that some of this 
Hoffman's style material is, you know, what people worried about here in the 90s, in particular in philosophy about, you know, postmodernism and so forth, giving up the truth and Richard Rorty and so forth. I think the, the, the kind of incoherence, what, what really people worried about this has now infiltrated uh, politics, neuroscience, but other disciplines too, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, Rovelli, the way in which Rovelli speaks yeah. about physics and nobility, I think it's the same. So I think there's like a whole, I call, I call the, this climate of uh, uh, misbegotten conceptions of knowledge, uh, uh, Foucaultianism. You know, it's the worst of Foucault and the worst of Kant, and it's also crazy Kant, Foucault. It's also, uh, it's a vulgar form of Nietzscheanism. And I think Donald Trump, you know, like if you look at this, you know, Nietzsche, it's the farce of what Nietzsche calls the blonde beast. And, um, and, and this whole post-truth thing, I mean, there, you know, everything that we worried about, you know, decades ago from philosophy is like, uh, you know, now this has come, become a principle almost everywhere. And uh, I think there's a lot uh, 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 of work for philosophers to be done. And in, in many, in, in, in Europe, the, the contemporary philosophical trends are therefore often associated with the label of realism, new realism, that's just my word, and speculative realism, and this realism, and that realism. And the reason why, in particular, philosophers in Europe have, you know, moved to the realist camp, broadly speaking, right, uh, is, uh, you know, resisting that. We have our own version of it, you know, the, in Germany, uh, the Christian Democrats, for instance, people don't think about this, you know, you think about the far right when you think about pro political problems in Germany, but well, we have the Christian Democrats, that's nasty. Uh, I, I shouldn't have said that on the record. <laughs> uh, no, no, Christian Democrats are great. <laughs> All right, well, I did say that was the last question, but we will have one, one last question now. But yeah, the Hoffman, I'll make you nervous. Me too, actually. Well, I suppose this has to do with realism. Uh, in Veda, there, there are these 40 aspects. Uh, one is yoga, and there was this Patanjali who cognized it, four chapters. The third chapter is called Siddhi, S-I-D-H-I in Sanskrit, often translated as perfection, power, uh, supernormal ability, attainment. The cities uh, are, are listed as things like levitation, walking through walls, invisibility, strength of an elephant, um, being in multiple bodies at the same time, knowledge of past and future, knowledge of the contents and nature of other people's minds. Uh, challenges to our understanding of reality, and Veda deals with these seven states of consciousness, neurophysiological states of consciousness, beyond uh, the first three being waking, dreaming, deep sleep. So we've been talking a lot as, about mathematics as kind of a one application of mathematics is to describe physical reality, but here you have a physical reality which is, you know, right here, I mean, in the room, if some of these things uh, actually exist, which doesn't seem to be challenged. Um, so what are your thoughts about this? Uh, this knowledge has, you know, quite <clears throat> serious um, um, history and... Uh... Maybe I can say two things about this. There have been attempts to actually, in some of the labs, particularly in, in the US, <coughs> even in Princeton, to, to um, demonstrate phenomena like this. And much of that has been shown to be, um, some experiments haven't been done well designed, some experiments haven't been well analyzed. And so I, I'm doubtful about that material. 
But still, there are other situations in which these cases happen spontaneously. I mean, not under, under laboratory conditions. And then um, my first reaction would be, is that really something that fits into the range of validity of physical theories? I mean, we, I think we all agree that the world does not only consist of, consist of physics and physical reality, right? There's more to that than that. And for instance, what we do not understand at all up to the present day, uh, notwithstanding all, all neuroscience and brain and stuff and so on, is the relationship between the mental and the physical. We don't have any clue. We can measure correlations, but we don't know where they come from, what they do, and so on. I don't know what science will bring us when we understand this better. I'm not saying that we can explain this all, this all then, but I'm only saying uh, that it is maybe not the, not the best reaction to try and ask physics to explain that, because it may, be, may go far beyond what physics is designed for to explain. Okay, thank you. So. Well, thank you everyone for an excellent afternoon, and I'm looking forward to looking at this for years to come on uh, YouTube. <laughs> <laughs>